Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg. Hi there, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, I'm traveling to France, to the beaches of Normandy, with a very special guest, Professor David Eisenhower, the grandson of President Dwight Eisenhower and the son-in-law of Richard Nixon. We'll talk about General Eisenhower and Winston Churchill, who led the invasion of Normandy on June 6, 1944, dubbed the longest day. Eisenhower talks in depth about that day and the events leading up to it. The plans drawn up, the plans abandoned. The lessons learned, and perhaps most important, the lessons applied. We revisit that history together at the American Cemetery in Normandy, and then have an extended conversation on board the World Navigator. I'm happy to share that conversation with you now. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. I want to start off by something that, that came out of a discussion, the conversation I had with David just the other night, and that are three words, victory, vision, and leadership. Uh, going back to your grandfather and taking it all the way through to, to present day. Uh, I'm reminded of a scene in one of my favorite movies, I hope you've seen it, if you haven't, go take a look at it, because it's sort of prescient now, Three Days of the Condor, with the Robert Redford and Cliff Robertson and the legendary British actor John Houseman. And there's a scene in that movie in which Redford is finally brought in from, from the cold. And he's sitting there with Cliff Robertson and John Houseman. And he learns that John Houseman's been around since the original days of the OSS. <laughs> and he looks at him and he says, sir, do you miss, and actually it was Cliff Robertson who says it to him. He goes, do you miss that kind of action? And John Houseman says, no. 
I, I won't do the accent, but he said, no, I miss that kind of clarity. And I think that's what we're all in search of today. Mm. Uh, when it goes to those three words of victory, vision, and leadership. You know, one of the things that you mentioned in terms of your grandfather and JFK goes back to a sense and sensibility of a civil conversation mm -hmm. uh, where mm. we're not so siloed. Uh, we had LBJ having no, no hesitation at all to inviting er uh, Everett Dirksen over to the White House, uh, Ronald Reagan with Pat Moynihan, even Newt Gingrich and, and, and Bill Clinton. Mm -hmm. They would come over after hours and share a drink and figure it out. Um, and then, of course, Eisenhower and Kennedy in uh, 1962. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have that today. I mean, Kennedy had figured it out. Uh, I think he was looking for confirmation for Eisenhower, but the point's well taken. Uh, and that is uh, uh, partly, I think we, we agreed, uh, American politics has been a stalemate for a long time. And uh, our, our golden ages of bipartisanship uh, come about when you have a pattern where you have a sun uh, and you have planets. Uh, the Sun is a Democratic Party, say, in the Roosevelt era, and the Planet is the Republican Party. Uh, when you have a dominant party and a minority party, that creates uh, incentives uh, that uh, are lacking. But I think that the, uh, I, I would come, you say vision, yeah. uh, leadership, and uh, a, a word that keeps coming to me when I hear all of those words and I associate is mission. Uh, the, the idea that uh, uh, defining a mission that people uh, accept as being important or overriding and organizing action to address that mission. I think Which that transcends. That, that transcends, yeah. I think that, that that's what drew the Eisenhower command together. I was thinking about that on the way to the presentation this morning. Uh, the uh, <clears throat> uh, various British critiques of Eisenhower and so forth, but they're all indirect because what they can't uh, what they don't dare to address uh, is the real power of Eisenhower's leadership example, which was confining their objections to the margins uh, because they are marginal to uh, addressing mission. Uh, Mission-oriented presidency is something that I actually speak a great deal of uh, uh, to classes at University of Pennsylvania. It's sort of a simple, uh, it's mine, I sort of made it up, but it's sort of a simple, uh, simple insight into leadership in the presidency, which I uh, derive really from uh, Eisenhower's experience in World War II. Uh, strangely, his experience as president, as best I've been able to study it, the Nixon presidency, which I saw, and that is, we all want strong presidents, at least when I'm being raised, I'm an undergraduate fellow by the name of Clinton Rosser. I went through the Navy with his son. Rosser of Cornell University writes this book where he says, uh, we all want uh, strong presidents now. In other words, we've had Ike and we want a strong president, and that means a commander in chief, chief executive, chief judge, chief of legislature, chief of state, chief of diplomacy, chief of party, chief of prosperity, chief of all these things. Uh, in, uh, in fact, as well as name and so forth, and so he outlines, you know, he profiles all the strong presidents in a very convincing way. And my question is, uh, since we now know what a strong president is and how desirable that is, why haven't we always had strong presidents since? And the answer is uh, that leadership is mission-oriented. Uh, and so you can describe uh, the titles, uh, the functions of the presidency and so forth, but in fact, the way the presidency works, 
is that when a president is addressing mission, in other words, mission is defined by interaction uh, between the public and the candidates, generally through elections. Uh, and so the president takes power with what uh, we call a mandate of some kind, uh, but a mandate uh, particularly to address overriding issues of public concern. And when the president is doing that, the president deploys all of these powers that Rossiter lays out in the American presidency in 1957 and a few more. When he's not, uh, and by the way, I use he, uh, we're gonna have a she very fast. I always uh, qualify that. Uh, but uh, uh, when not, presidents tend to exercise their powers ministerially, and that is just the way it works. Uh, because uh, presidents take on great challenges, and then as those challenges are met and overcome, the politically relevant question is not rewarding a president for a job well done, but defining the next mission and identifying the next individual who will organize uh, action to uh, address that mission. And Nixon is an extreme case in point. Eisenhower is a case in point. Um, they're all cases in point. Um, but if I, if I can interrupt on one question, that is, Going back to, to so, the- So, wait a minute, yeah, Peter. I mean, the, the final thing here is that I think the thing that really hobbles America right now is that we have not come together on mission. I think that we have come together on a consensus that we now have problems that the federal government must take on. Uh, that's a strange consensus that has developed in all of the strife over the last five or six years. But the one thing that, has, uh, that we are still debating in a very fundamental way is what comes first. Uh, we have a racial priority, we have a racial imperative emergency, uh, which has been out there since uh, the summer of 2020. We've had a long developing middle class emergency uh, in this country. Right now they're competing. Uh, and we have, not, uh, we have not made the call yet. We have not decided one comes first and the, and the, and the other comes second. And uh, when that happens, I th that's I think gonna be our next opportunity to have, uh, uh, I would say, Civility as well as uh, as well as leadership. Well, in the, in the era of civility, your father-in-law defeated George McGovern with the largest landslide in the history of American politics. Right. And guess what? You guys were talking to each other. Yeah, we were. <laughs> By strange coincidence, uh, my early days at Penn. I've had two lives at Penn. Uh, I was a fellow in the political science department. Uh, a hiatus of about five years, and then I was brought back on full appointment at the, uh, in the Department of Communications. But uh, during my political science life, I had a very fascinating mentor there uh, who, I'm not sure how much he enjoyed university teaching. He made it his business because of where University of Pennsylvania is located, right on the uh, uh, bus wash, uh, the, uh, the train. Uh, you, we can bring anybody to Penn. He made it his business to get to know everybody. Uh, in official Washington embassies, this and that. And one person he happened to know was George McGovern. Uh, and so George McGovern was a, I think he came to our seminar probably three times. And so here I am, uh, <laughs> this man ran against my father-in-law and we're having uh, wonderful discussions with Senator George McGovern. I'm glad I had those discussions because I was out of the country. I was in the Navy at the time uh, for the 72 election. So I got a very, uh, I would say, uh, uh, sort of an exaggerated view of what was going on in 72, and I was, uh, had an opportunity to listen to the man uh, in light of things that I was studying to understand him. And here's a man who 
probably encountered more danger in World War II than, than anyone. This is a fellow who was a bombardier on uh, 15th Air Force uh, flight staging from Foggia. Uh, I think he flew 35 missions uh, to s southern Germany. And an experience like that uh, really affects uh, you. I won't say it affects your outlook as though you're impaired in some way. It gives you insight, a uh, special kind of insight. And I think that it uh, converted him, uh, as a number of presidents, I believe, are, into, in, in a practical way, of, uh, for all practical purposes, a pacifist. And, <clears throat> but we had these wonderful discussions. And uh, uh, one, and we were talking about this the other oh, yeah. day, something that always haunted him, and I think that uh, GIs uh, and uh, people carried things like this forward. This is a, uh, my favorite, one of my favorite stories. Uh, we were sitting in the faculty club, uh, all ears listening to McGovern describe this terrible thing that he carried forward. And that was on one of his last missions. This was in the late winter of 1945. <clears throat> I think it was over uh, uh, the Vienna area. Uh, they were heavy. Uh, there had been cloud cover, so they were unable to find the primary target or even the secondary target. And so they're heading back to base. They're heavy, so they just, just dropped the bombs. Just dropped the bombs. And he's watching this uh, through the bomb site. And he watched these bombs obliterate uh, a beautiful farm. And he assumed that just uh, for the convenience of the crew or whatever that they had um, you know, brought lives to an end and so forth. And he said that had always haunted him. For decades. Decades. So the sequel is, and I can document this, there's actually a news story on it, <clears throat> which I encountered about three weeks ago. Pat Nixon dies, and who turns up at the Pat Nixon funeral? George McGovern. Uh, boy, was that a generous act. Generous. And I was thrilled to see him, and I said, uh, oh, and by the way, Senator, you know, I tell this story all the time. I think it's, uh, to me, one of the most haunting stories of World War II and so forth. And he says, well, you know, there's a sequel. And he said, I was, I was on Italian television about four, four years ago, and I laid this out in painstaking detail, and uh, I confessed. And as I'm leaving the studio, there's a phone call, uh, and it was the owner of the farm, uh, and they wanted him to know that they were away that weekend uh, and that insurance covered the rebuilding of the farm. And so everybody was happy. Uh, and so he says, now I can sleep. And, you know, so at any rate. But, uh, you know, GIs carried those things forward. But it's indicative way. that you could have that conversation. Yes, it was. And I think it's, uh, by the way, that's something that I've enjoyed, uh, uh, that I enjoy about the academic world because officially uh, in academia, uh, we're there to learn uh, from people. Uh, which means we uh, relate to guests on all sides of the spectrum in a sort of different way, and, and you come to see uh, the reasonableness uh, of people, uh, and we try to promote that uh, uh, with all due respect for the differences that really exist in American politics. And it's given me, I think, uh, at least a roadmap for for how American politics gets past this conundrum, and that is, uh, again, coming together, uh, understanding what must be done now, uh, and understanding things that we're going to do in process. Uh, and I think that's the way American politics has worked. It's not working that way right now. <clears throat> Although, to what extent does the speed and the flow of information affect all, affect yeah. all this? Because when your father-in-law was president, we didn't have the internet. Right. We didn't have high-speed communications. Right. 
uh, Americans stayed home every night at 6.30 to watch the evening news. It was, that it was really appointment television. Today we get our information from 35 or 40 different sources, right. not three networks. Um, and then the perception of leadership and the perception of the mission gets a little confusing. Uh, well, uh, you're a journalist. Uh, as a professional journalist, you're in a much better position to assess this. I'm an historian. And so I don't fully understand uh, this social media world that we're in right now. Uh, and I do intuit that it's different uh, in some ways. Uh, what I see as an historian is that uh, institutions uh, like the presidency and so forth have a way of uh, adapting uh, to certain environments. Um, as far as the free flow of information goes in the presidency, actually the presidency is going in the other, other direction right now. Uh, the, one of the projects that I run at Penn uh, is one in which uh, we provide travel stipends to students to go to presidential libraries, to the Churchill Project in Cambridge, uh, to uh, De Gaulle Papers, to Turkey. Uh, we sent a, sent a girl, a student of mine, to Istanbul uh, and so forth to do primary research. Uh, but uh, looking at the presidential library system itself... Uh, well, can I just jump in there? How many people know how many presidential libraries there are? Do you, anybody know? It's not a lot. Tell them, David. Those are, uh, 10 is a good guess, uh, 13. Yeah. Uh, and I think that several others uh, are now gaining recognition as libraries that are not libraries, but will be considered full libraries soon because uh, of the Obama president. What Obama has done is he has separated uh, his research, uh, that is his papers repository, from his, li quote, library. Uh, the library then becomes a museum. It becomes a public policy center, which is uh, what, University of Chicago? Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's in Chicago. His papers are going to be housed in Washington, which means that the presidential library is a combination public policy center, museum, uh, repository for papers and so forth is, uh, is gone. Now, when that becomes accepted, the Lincoln Library, where there are no papers in, in Springfield, uh, the Lincoln Library becomes a full presidential library. Probably the Coolidge Library uh, becomes full in every respect. Uh, there's a TR Library I think people are trying to organize. But right now, you've got, um, they start with Hoover uh, and they go through o Obama. Um, and the genesis, very interesting. In fact, uh, Richard Nixon and I, uh, and Julie, one afternoon uh, we decided to drive from their home in northern New Jersey over to the Roosevelt Library. And uh, we got a little briefing paper from some Nixon staffer before we went over. This was well after he left office. And uh, <clears throat> described the origins of the presidential library system. And apparently FDR established it in 1939 <clears throat> sent Harry Hopkins uh, up to Hyde Park to organize his papers, and the insinuation in the press release, or in the uh, uh, summary, was that Roosevelt was very anxious that his children not sell off his papers. Uh, <laughs> so, so this was this was the idea uh, to make sure that the uh, uh, you know th these weren't didn't turn up on eBay. Uh, so that's where it starts. Uh, it digresses to Hoover. Or it goes from Roosevelt to Truman, then digre or Hoover, Truman, uh, their second, Eisenhower's four, uh, then Kennedy, Johnson, hop, skip over Nixon for years until the Nixon paper disputes were resolved. Uh, and then uh, Nixon, meanwhile, builds a library, and then it all comes together when 
uh, National Archives of Records Administration uh, puts records there and so forth. So he's now in the system. Uh, you have a Ford Library, terrific library, Carter, Reagan, uh, and so on. And I would, re uh, Clinton is very, very good. And by the way, good research-wise, but what's happening is that since 9-11 and a series of executive orders, access to the presidency, strangely, you're talking about social media, yeah. in this universe of 24-7 information, our actual knowledge, it seems to me, the inner workings of the White House is going to be much less uh, in the next 15 or 20 years because of internal uh, security and I would say reversion to form. Uh, the idea that uh, presidents generate records that you and I can walk in and examine is uh, rather unique uh, to America in the uh, 20th and early 21st century. So you're coming up with a, with a redefinition of executive privilege. Uh, it's executive privilege which is the norm. Uh, the Queen of England keeps a diary. I don't know why. Uh, I don't know who's ever going to read it. Uh, the Pope, it's, a, it's in her handbag. It's in her handbag. Uh, <laughs> France has an official secrets act. Uh, the Vatican uh, keeps uh, rules, uh, uh, keeps official records and so forth, but none of these are available. Uh, the Soviet archives were open for about six months, <laughs> uh, six months and then closed. That's yeah. the natural thing to protect information. Uh, and yet uh, Americans became very used to transparent uh, presidency. I would say, and we have travelers here, uh, a good destination weekend would be a cluster of presidential libraries I somewhere. See. Uh, and uh, work in weekdays, uh, a Friday or a Monday, so that you can actually work in uh, research rooms. You have a right to do that. Uh, these records belong to you, they belong to the public. And so you can access uh, records, and uh, uh, this is uh, about as uh, exciting an experience you can have as a traveler as going to Normandy, uh, because it is a primary experience. If you're handling documents, uh, it's like uh, walking on Pointe Hoc. It's uh, you're talking as a historian, I'm talking as a journalist. I can't begin to tell you how amazing that experience is to go to the Nixon Library, the Reagan Library, the Bush Library, and both Bush libraries, by the way, yeah. in, in Texas. Uh, you learn so much. Because oh, yeah. it's not just the papers that are there, it's how they've curated them, yeah. and it's how they, how they exhibit them. Well, it's also a direct experience. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I was uh, asked to defend this concept uh, uh, and an alumni group. I think uh, there are a lot of skeptical people. I've encountered some skepticism in this one project that I run, and that is the Directed Research Project. One is from the libraries themselves. Uh, their initial pushback was, this is a graduate school activity. And I said, well, A, I have some graduate students, and B, I'll take the compliment uh, as offered that we're performing at a graduate level. Uh, that's part of it. So there was that skepticism. And the other is that this is a boondoggle. And I was very angry when I heard that. So, so my quick reaction was, and this was completely spontaneous, well, look, if you want to learn about France, there are two ways you can do that. Now, you can go to Epcot Center, or you can go to France. That is, you can go to France. Uh, now, now, which one would you rather do? The, the, these libraries, or these presidential eras, and White Houses, and so forth, uh, in formaldehyde. Uh, you're going on, on location, you're, you're having a, a direct experience with it. Now, what have people learned on this trip? You've learned a lot about coastal civilizations, a lot about uh, Iberia. You've learned, uh, uh, you've seen the magnificent Mont Saint Michel and the treasures uh, in France, and you've seen Normandy. I, I guarantee you that you've walked away from all of these experiences uh, with a visual picture uh, of uh, what you've seen that will reinforce, uh, enhance your retention of everything uh, that you encounter on this uh, from now on. I'll, I'll tell you a story that just happened as an email I got yesterday. 
A good friend of mine uh, who works for NDC, Carrie Sanders, was here on June 6th with the last survivors yeah. of D-Day, right. uh, many of whom were over 100, of course. And he said it wasn't enough to interview them. He said, I went down to the beach. He just wrote me this yesterday. He said, I took, and I went to the beach and I ran. I, I, I wanted to feel it. I wanted to run up that hill. He said, until I did that, I really had no idea. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, if you can imagine that. Just seeing the, seeing the bluffs. Uh, it's something that will come back to you over and over again uh, in the future and at unexpected moments. Uh, but, uh, well, another thing I tell students uh, at the dawn of the seminar, I, I said, uh, I make two points. One is uh, working with primary research changes your relationship with the subject. If you actually do something, if you actually go there, uh, you stand in the shoes of people that uh, you would consider authorities who have been there. Uh, that's number one. And number two, uh, you just uh, uh, consider this. Uh, if you read presidential history, and you read the masters of presidential history, uh, the, uh, the, the Caros and the, uh, uh, the, Doris Kearns Goodwin. the Doris Kearns Goodwin and so forth, and read the acknowledgments and so forth in these books, and almost all of them are written on location in presidential libraries. Uh, I'm, su I'm suggesting here a limitation uh, in our uh, digital world right now. I think that direct experience does matter. I can't agree more. You and I yesterday had the opportunity to walk in the cemetery. Right. And we were reminded immediately, as I think many of you were, of that scene in Saving Private Ryan. Right. Uh, opening and closing. Opening and closing, where he kneels at the grave and wants to know one thing, have I lived a good life? Yeah, that's it. You mentioned that yesterday, and I uh, you reminded me of why watching that movie a second time I became a real fan of that movie and it was that scene uh, because the uh, I think that uh, everybody who went through that experience must have felt a debt uh, towards the people that they left behind and in one way or another uh, lived their lives uh, in awareness of that. Uh, one of the last things my father <laughs> said to me, uh, he was uh, cogent to the very end. In fact, my <coughs> last conversation with him was to call him to congratulate him. He had a book published. Uh, uh, book published, but book accepted for publication. It was a, a biography of William Sherman. Uh, and he said, um, well, remember, Dave, as far as our family goes, there's only one thing that really matters, only one thing, and that is the D-Day worked. Uh, that's all that matters. Uh, and I think that that was uh, uh, typical even of uh, Dwight Eisenhower. I, th I think the uh, people came away from that campaign, that experience, uh, feeling some sort of lease, new lease on life, but also an obligation to use it a certain sort of way. You know, I think of the word victory again, and if you take a look at all the movies that have been done uh, on war, on Americans' participation in the war, there are only about two that didn't celebrate a victory. One was The Best Years of Our Lives, right. and one was The Bridges of Toko Reed. If right. you ever saw that movie with, with William Holden and Mickey Rooney and yeah. Hal March, and the last scene in that movie reminded me yesterday when we talked about it, yeah. where, and, and Ronald Reagan said it in his speech when he, was in, when he was in Normandy, where do we get these people? Where do we get these men? Where do they come from? Yeah, Ronald Reagan, who always remembered movie lines. Uh, and he was able to work that in. In fact, uh, that line, he uses that line uh, in the introductory film at the Reagan Library, uh, where, in fact, where he and Nancy are filmed, right where we were yesterday, walking between the crosses. 
uh, at Normandy. And the voiceover is, where did we find these men? And so it was from Bridges of Tokori, and I believe that William Holden, who was the star in that show, was one of his best friends, best man. Uh, best at, at his wedding? Uh, in in, in his Studio wedding. City, California. Yeah, Studio City. Yeah, so Reagan was somebody that, um, uh, he understood the power of uh, drama, film, uh, to shape the culture, and he understood the uh, importance of dealing with history in a certain sort of way. I think he had a controversial approach to it, but uh, you know, I read uh, fairly widely in history, and uh, the historiography in areas that we do not immediately that do not immediately come uh, to mind, like uh, Egypt. How did uh, uh, ancient Egypt approach the question of history? Uh, how did the Romans approach it? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Reagan is. Uh, uh, <laughs> Actually, he's a member of a number of schools that uh, I can identify. Uh, but he understood, uh, particularly World War II, uh, was a, uh, if you look back on the Reagan presidency, it is a celebration of America in many ways. I, 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 where I got in my presentation, 84 opens a phase, it seems to me, in the American presidency where we celebrate America for about 16 years. This goes on until 2001. And I would say if uh, there's a motif that runs through Reagan, there are two motifs. One is the founding, uh, and the other is World War II. You know, when we were talking just the other day, I was thinking, you and I are born about two years apart. Many of the people in this room are our age. We were the boomers. Right. We were all mm -hmm. born after World War II. Right. So we were born into an area, into an era of the American century, prosperity, and we always grew up realizing we were victors. We were, yep. we were the most powerful country in the world. At some level. Right, we all knew uh, that. For all of our problems. Yeah. By the way, I've got a, uh, uh, a book that I teach uh, as a kind of speech. It's called uh, Common Sense by Thomas Paine. Ah. Uh, this, is a, uh, this is a speech, or this is a uh, tract that runs for about 65 printed pages. Uh, what's missing uh, at, in the revolutionary era is the kind of speech delivered by a president that identifies an era, such as Lincoln's first inaugural, such as Roosevelt's first inaugural, such as Reagan's inaugural. Where is that inaugural in the revolutionary era uh, that uh, announces the break uh, with the, our connection with uh, uh, Britain and a new era? And uh, my conclusion was it's uh, Thomas Paine's common sense, uh, because this, uh, <clears throat> this was a 60-page book William Harrison gave an inaugural in 1841 How short was that, that lasted four hours. Uh, he contracted a cold in the course of delivering that speech that killed him 30 days later. So there's a moral of the story, and that is don't speak for four hours if you're uh, being inaugurated president. But uh, if you do four hours, how long would it take to read Common Sense? About four hours. Yeah. Uh, so, so I look at it as a speech. But in the uh, Penguin edition of that book that I have, uh, the scholar who is analyzing uh, Paine and describing his career said, Thomas Paine understood something about America. Uh, even though he was a professional revolutionary who spent most of his life in England and France, uh, he, uh, America was a drive-by uh, for him in the late 1770s. But he says he understood something and he says, America is so favored that it can only be enjoyed in an atmosphere of crisis. Uh, and uh, in other words, so favored. Uh, and I think that that's something that we all understand even though we are not, that's something that's reinforced by travel. Uh, but I think that that's something we all grew up understanding. It's something I understand uh, second nature. Uh, maybe it was the culture, but uh, 
the opportunities that are available to Americans, the, uh, the wealth uh, of our country, the diversity of our country, uh, all of this is something that uh, makes me feel fortunate to have lived when I uh, have lived because I think Americans uh, are able to experience that in their lifetimes, and I don't know how long that lasts. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. We've experienced the history of World War II, invasion of Normandy. We grew up, as I said, in that... In that uh, atmosphere of victory, right. and then came Vietnam. Yeah. Uh, we, we sort of glossed over the Korean War because you were maybe three years old and I was maybe right. a year old, uh, so we didn't really have that perspective. Yeah. But Vietnam, it was inescapable. Well, Vietnam was a, um, there's another thing that is going on in Vietnam uh, as well that I think that we all at some level intuit, uh, and that is by the 1960s, uh, I think we were aware of the fact that we this Cold War was in fact diminishing uh, and that uh, the aspect of the Cold War that drove Korea and other things was also diminishing and that was the idea of a direct threat to the United States. Uh, Vietnam comes along at a time when America is prepared to celebrate uh, the end of all of this. Uh, uh, what we do finally celebrate in 1984, that we're, we're emerging from this time of emergency, uh, sacrifice, uh, uh, emergency declarations, and, and so forth, that we're actually... Uh, and so Vietnam uh, uh, arrives as a sort of last battle. And I think there were a lot of people that felt it was not necessary. Uh, and that... Uh, uh, so psychologically, it's very hard uh, for, for America in that period. And I think that we've... Uh, the problem is that we draw wrong conclusions from uh, an ambivalence that probably had a very firm foundation. Not only that, uh, the world is changing a lot in 64, 65. The principal change that Johnson could not take advantage of, that Nixon meant by ending the war and winning the peace, is that the Soviet empire was breaking up, had broken up, uh, and that that break would work to our advantage. Uh, this was the Sino-Soviet split. Uh, there were, uh, we're talking about the Chinese mobilization. Actually, the uh, uh, most spectacular mobilization of the 1960s was the Soviet Union against the Chinese. Uh, the Soviets had more nuclear weapons trained on China by 1967 than they had trained on NATO uh, because they intended to muscle these people back into the socialist commonwealth. But we were in a position to uh, provide a uh, soft landing there. Uh, involvement in Asia played a part in that. Uh, so there, there was unfinished business uh, in that period, particularly from uh, the vantage point of governmental affairs and uh, American leaders. But population, uh, our country by the 1960s, we were really oriented towards uh, post-Cold War uh, at home. And so I think that created tensions. Uh, I think all sides were right in a strange way, uh, and I think it's uh, something that uh, we have inevitably carried forward, but uh, I don't think we should look someday, I think people will 
understand that era for what it was. But you're right, it had a big impact on our generations. You know, you just said something that surprised me and maybe some other people. How many people here knew that they had more nuclear weapons trained on China than us? Yeah, by that 67. Was not widely, that wasn't widely reported. Well, Robert Strauss, who pay, who's the uh, uh, man who served in more ambassadorships than any American in history, uh, says that the most dangerous moment of the Cold War was 1969. Uh, his view was, and I think you would probably get an argument uh, from the Kennedy people, and probably a sound argument, but he says uh, a, a direct nuclear exchange between the United States and Soviet Union was never in the cards. Uh, that would have never happened. Uh, if you look at the history of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the history of Berlin and so forth, uh, with the outbreak and acknowledgement of crisis, all the pressure on our side and presumably on their side as well, was to prevent uh, the use of nuclear weapons. By contrast, uh, as the Soviets were invading Czechoslovakia and they're inviting China uh, back into the fold in 68 and 69 and building up uh, on the Chinese frontier, the idea of war against, between the Soviet Union, a nuclear su superpower, and China, a fledgling one, uh, with no capacity to retaliate, and America on the sidelines was a very real possibility. And then, of course, uh, and was Nixon's trip to China in 71. Which was a response to that. Yeah. Um, in fact, um, we spent this August of 69 when the uh, Soviets and the Chinese were actually fighting division-level battles along the uh, Amur, uh, Amur and the Usuri rivers. Uh, they were fighting wars. In fact, I saw a recent documentary, uh, Chinese veterans of the war against the Soviet Union in 1969 with their medals. Uh, describing the actions they were involved in and so forth. This was actually a war that was not being uh, widely reported. Uh, this was a kind of turning point. And um, as I say, we pay people to make judgments. And I'm a 20-year-old, and we're having barbecues every night in the backyard of San Clemente. There's this young Harvard professor by the name of Kissinger and this junior colonel by the name of Al Haig and Nixon and so forth. And all these things are going on, and I'm bringing these questions uh, to uh, to dinner, they were naive questions. Uh, one of them was, uh, why do we think this can work for us? I mean, the Chinese and Russians are arguing over how to do us in. How can this possibly work? I mean, they're bound to compose their differences. That was one of my questions. And the second one... Did it get answered? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> my second question was, look at all the claims the Chinese are making on the Russians in Asia under these uh, unequal treaties and so forth, I think the Russians probably have something to really worry about here. Uh, in other words, they might have a lot, of, uh, <clears throat> a lot of pluses on their side. Well, their response to that was, Kissinger's response to uh, the Soviets and Chinese will uh, compose their differences was uh, absolutely not. He says, this is like the Pope residing in Avignon. Uh, this, is a, uh, this is an irreconcilable split. And that was his first, and that was his reaction. Then uh, in response to the idea that the Soviets and Chinese, uh, the Chinese threaten the Soviets in some way in uh, Asia, Nixon leans forward and he says, the Chinese will never leave China. They're not interested. And it's the combination of these two judgments that leads to the opening to China because what Nixon sees is that if given a chance uh, and configured in a certain sort of way, it is not natural for the Soviet Union and China to fight each other because, in fact, the Soviet Union is a European-oriented country. Their back is to China. China is an Asian, they're a middle kingdom. Their back is to the Soviet Union. They do not intersect uh, in a way that means that they have to fight. Uh, and so what that meant was we could safely intervene. 
uh, in that quarrel, which is what we did. That's what uh, the opening to China was. It was intervening in the Sino-Soviet quarrel, which the uh, Democratic administrations in the 1960s absolutely refused to do uh, under Soviet pressure. You know, when I was growing up, we were still hiding under our desks, Yep. right? How many people here had to hide under the desks at school? Uh, I did. And then there was the space race. Yeah. And, you know, I'm still recovering from Sputnik because they, they beat yeah, us, right? Right. But then again, and you and I were talking about this just yesterday. It really left a mark, by the it, way. It, it did. It sure did. But we were talking about this yesterday. I keep saying, you know, we're talking now about Richard Branson and people going into space. The Russian monkey had a better deal because, because all he had to do was go up and come down. He was only up, he wasn't, he was suborbital. Yeah. They weren't in space. But there's another issue here, and that's what you brought up to me yesterday, and that is the equipment wasn't that good. Yeah, the equipment wasn't that good. But the, but the other thing, too, about the era, and I think that this accounts, again, for the unique flavor of the 1950s. I think that uh, the impulse is to caricature the 1950s. Uh, there's a conformity in that this is somehow unnecessary, uh, or there's a stability and somehow this is superficial, or we're superficial aspects of it. But Consider this, when my grandfather leaves office in 1960, uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki- 61. 61, all right, technically 61. Uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki are as close to him and Kennedy uh, at the 1961 inaugural as 15 uh, from 2022, 2007. Uh, I wanna say the surge in Iraq uh, was uh, that George W. Bush orders in 2007. It, it's that close. Every year thereafter, and this is what's at stake, by the way, in Ukraine, uh, the question is whether we are in any way going to revise uh, our feelings on this. But I would argue that every year, moving away from 1945, every year, uh, the world got safer as far as use of nuclear weapons go, uh, because the idea of resorting to these weapons became less and less thinkable as uh, nuclear powers in the civilized world uh, really reckoned uh, with what had happened there. But there are also uh, the classified memos that basically said the Russian equipment doesn't really work. Well, that's right. Uh, so we question their technological competence, and I've spoken about that on several of the buses, uh, uh, Russian competence. But still, I think the uh, even, let's say, a, uh, let's say if you credit the Russians with 20,000 atomic weapons, which uh, we might have at the height of the uh, Cold War, maybe even more. Uh, how about the uh, successful employment of about five of them? Uh, would that be acceptable to America? I don't think so. Uh, in other words, just the, the employment of these things in any circumstance. I think one of the things that I'm morally sure of, in fact, on the subject of presidential libraries, go to the Truman Library uh, in Kansas City. We've had, we have talked about the Manhattan Project. Well, you go to the Truman Library, there's actually something very poignant there, and that is there's an eternal flame, like the eternal flame for Kennedy in Arlington. Uh, and it's contributed by uh, GIs in gratitude for Truman's use of the bomb. To end the war early. That, to end the war, to uh, excuse them from the invasion of Honshu. And <clears throat> that, to me, says everything. Why would the Truman Library highlight that uh, in the way, uh, way it does? Why would soldiers be moved to that? And I think it's because it's a symptom to me of how difficult that decision genuinely was. And particularly uh, the, I would say, the ambivalence that Truman and others felt about that action 
uh, in hindsight. In fact, there's a scene in President at the Creation written by Dean Acheson, which is his memoir. Great book. I think it's uh, Truman, certainly his last uh, dinner in the White House involving a foreign visitor. This was Winston Churchill, who had called on President-elect Eisenhower in New York, gotten on a train and gone down to Washington, had a farewell dinner with Truman. And uh, I believe it's in uh, uh, President at the Creation. Uh, the uh, conversation begins uh, uh, when you arrive at the pearly gates uh, and you have to account for your life. Uh, what is it that you're going to account for? And Truman's response was the bomb. Uh, and so if you think that American internally were shocked by this thing and that it took us after all the interim commission four or five months to decide to recommend to the president that he uses this. Takes us four months to decide to use a weapon relatively small on these cities. Uh, what are the implications or what would be the meaning of unleashing a nuclear inventory on the world? Uh, and uh, <clears throat> so we've had a consensus since 45 that it's developed over time that these things cannot be done. Uh, and that is, again, what's uh, in play here in Ukraine. And I, I think that that's, uh, that to me is one of the great, uh, you know, we're all paying attention to this. You know, you spoke uh, Use of the theater nuclear weapons, even against the Ukrainians, not invoking uh, NATO, which was thinkable in 1969. That's exactly what uh, uh, was on our minds in 1969 when the Soviets and the Chinese were quarreling. Uh, use of this against Ukraine would be uh, catastrophic, and uh, it would completely revive the, the possibility. It, it would restore atomic weapons uh, to a place in military inventories where they are not currently. You, you talked about Eisenhower saying that D-Day bottom time. Bottom time. Truman, the bomb, ended the war earlier and bought them time. Yeah. What buys anybody time in Ukraine now? <laughs> well, I think we've actually done it uh, in a lot of ways. We've, uh, <clears throat> we've intervened uh, and yet somehow managed to intervene prudently in the sense that we are still not uh, in direct combat uh, with the Soviets, but we're obviously intervening in a way that's pretty effective uh, on the ground. I think we're all amazed by uh, the audacity of the Ukrainians for standing up and the effectiveness uh, with, with which they've stood up. It's hard for us to imagine. Uh, we know that when the, when the Russians and Germans were fighting over Ukraine in 1941, 42, 43, uh, and into 44, um, uh, the gains were pretty swift, but you had enormous, uh, you know, and you had enormous armies. Uh, I think we assume that Russia against Ukraine, which is would be a no basically a constituent state of the old USSR, that'd be a walkover. And obviously, something has gone very, very wrong there. Uh, put it another way, something has gone very right there, which is uh, there is a Ukrainian nation which will come through this, uh, and a large Ukrainian nation. If they make territorial concessions or if they acknowledge territorial concessions, if that even happens, uh, they're going to be minor. You know, we're almost at the 80th anniversary of D-Day. Right. This month is the 50th anniversary of Watergate. <laughs> I just thought I'd mention it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Has it been that long? <laughs> yeah. Where, where were you when the break-in happened? Uh, well, uh, you're calling me out here, Peter. I was actually in the White House. I'm uh, pretty sure the Nixons were away. I think they were in Florida. Uh, but we were in the White House, and uh, uh, it was um, 
I think we're accustomed to them by <clears throat> things not quite going right uh, all the time. And I remember our uh, concern right away. Uh, in this environment, anything is possible. Sure hope we had nothing to do with it. And uh, it was a chapter, opens a very significant chapter in the presidency. It's a chapter of, of the Cold War in a strange sort of way. Uh, from that pivot, which is uh, June of 1972 through August of 74, America takes 26 months out uh, to try a president of the United States. Now, what does 26 months out at the height of the so-called height of the Cold War uh, tell you about America and tell you about the world? Think about that. What's the subtext? We're strong. We're safe. Exactly. That's where Vietnam left us in a strange way. It left us um, hurting, but it left us in a, strangely we managed to improvise a response to that that actually put us materially in a better position than we were uh, at the outset of the war. And that is materially where we wind up uh, at the end of the Vietnam War is uh, in a de facto alliance with the Chinese. Uh, and that is a far more serious uh, threat to the Soviets. Uh, and nothing intervenes uh, from fall of Saigon through 83 when James Reston is having his stroll down Connecticut Avenue. Nothing happens. Uh, well, Afghanistan happens. Right. Yeah, that's, that's it. You know, the conventional wisdom, which is always a dangerous way to go, <laughs> but the conventional wisdom was that LBJ, was the, as a president, was the greatest social legislator in the history of presidents who was destroyed by Vietnam. Yeah. And that your father-in-law was the greatest foreign policy innovator in the history of presidents, who was destroyed by Watergate. Yeah. And when I mentioned that to you, you said something else. Well, the thing is, uh, I'm a little, uh, going back to this idea that leadership is mission-oriented, uh, it does not matter, I think, that a president is right about all things all the time. What matters is that a president is right about the right thing at the right time. And Lyndon Johnson in 1964 and 65 was truly right about the right thing at the right time. And that was uh, the need for laws uh, that would really change uh, the way America was living uh, and ending a segregated America. He was right about that. And I decline, uh, I would say from the point of view of a professor, uh, to accept the idea that Johnson has, quote, destroyed, close quote, about Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam is a transition problem for Johnson that he could not handle. Uh, and it brought his administration to an end. But if you think of it, why is he there? Why were Kennedy Johnson there in 1960 and 61? Kennedy, the first Catholic in America. You think uh, electing the first Catholic in American history does not have ramifications uh, for civil rights, uh, which are underway? Uh, do you think that uh, coupling him with uh, uh, with a Southerner who is a lawyer, or he's a lawmaker. What do you make of an election, 1961, where you have Kennedy, a senator, Johnson, a senator, running against Nixon, a former senator, and Lodge, a former senator? Never happened before. What's the next president going to do? Four senators opposing each other. What do senators do? They write laws. So this is the great fulfillment, it seems to me, of, the, uh, of that administration. And I, I decline to call that, uh, uh, that achievement altered in any way by, by 
they were not there to handle Vietnam. And so when Vietnam comes up, uh, Johnson is in a situation where uh, he has not run on the issue. Uh, he has not pretended to know a great deal about the issue. In fact, the way he explained Vietnam to the American people was uh, this was something that uh, Truman valued and Eisenhower valued and history values and the 30s teach us uh, and NATO credibility, everything except what's going on in Vietnam. Look, he had he, no idea what was going on in Vietnam. He was running on the Great Society. Right, running on the Great Society. So, so he's not going to handle that well. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, you could uh, uh, draw an analogy. Well, this is the mission-oriented uh, idea. The, the thing is, Johnson was a success, a complete success in the presidency by uh, the end of 65. By any yardstick, one would apply measuring success. Uh, but that's his conundrum, because he does not have authority to move on to the next problem. That is exactly what Nixon acquires in 1968. That is authority to address the Vietnam problem. And in Vietnam, uh, here's the irony uh, that I can recall. In fact, I was around at the time. Uh, you have Henry Kissinger calling Nixon from Paris uh, in Jan January 73. And he says, Mr. President, we're three for three. We have done everything that we set out to accomplish in 1969. We are a complete success. We have ended the Vietnam War. We have a detente with the Soviet Union. Uh, even though we have opened China, we are a complete success. Now, is that the beginning of a Nixon era in the American presidency? That means job well done. And so that, uh, uh, that means that uh, that presidency is in search of a mission when this uh, Watergate uh, virus uh, hits them that they're utterly, uh, it's, it, they're tired and that they are utterly unable to handle it. Uh, and so, like Johnson, uh, in the late 60s, uh, the second Nixon term becomes, uh, uh, he, he's not really even a player uh, in a process which is uh, examining his conduct and also putting on trial uh, practices which have developed in America since uh, the Cold War. Uh, in addition to Nixon leaving office, uh, we repeal 45 uh, states of emergency. Uh, there are about seven congressional votes that vote us right out of the Vietnam War, never again. Uh, we uh, basically shut down uh, the military arm of our, of our Cold War effort uh, as, as part of the process of uh, removing Nixon. And that's what the whole second term uh, becomes until you have the next line of presidents, Ford and Carter. Mm. And that brings up my last word today, leadership. Because when does the tide turn? We know about the turning point of D-Day. We know about the turning point we've seen with, with the atomic bomb. That was the turning point. What was the turning point when Vietnam and your father-in-law left in terms of leadership in America? Yeah, uh, one of the, uh, there's a fellow by the name of Sir Robert Thompson who was a British expert on counterinsurgency uh, who was valued by Americans. He was called in to consult and so forth. And one of the things that uh, struck me in the Nixon papers uh, was a conversation with, uh, with him. And uh, uh, in it he says, Vietnam is not the largest war of the 20th century, not nearly the largest war, but it may go into the books as one of the most decisive. Uh, and what it is, it's a, uh, I don't know about the, the leadership aspect of it, uh, but uh, like the 30 years war in Europe, which, which made our family Americans, 
we left Germany because of the, at least my paternal side left Germany because of the religious wars in Germany in the 17th century. Uh, this, is a, uh, this is a war that opens in uh, 16, was it 18, something like that. Yeah, 18, ends in 18, 1648, Westphalia. Uh, this is a war in which uh, countries are in and out, uh, intervening. It's like a kaleidoscope. It takes on different meanings in different contexts, wears on for 30 years, and results in the system of nations uh, in Europe. In other words, there's a, it's a transition. And in many ways, the Vietnam conflict was, um, I think, that way. Uh, it opens with uh, uh, the U.S. and the free world facing the communist world. Uh, <clears throat> it is encumbered uh, in prosecution by our decision by then to start seeing shades of gray in international affairs, but that's, that's all part of the process where we're moving beyond the Cold War and it ends uh, with a different world in, in, in many ways. And a world in which we had advantages, uh, major advantages that uh, uh, were less, I would say, relevant uh, in the pre-war period, uh, pre-Vietnam period. Uh, Pre-Vietnam, the way you measured uh, the power between um, uh, the free world and the Cold War was uh, throw weight, uh, number of deployed divisions, ships, uh, square miles. Uh, Move the fleet. Uh, exactly, uh, resources. Uh, when we come out of that in the 1970s, we're measuring nations by our economy. Uh, if you're measuring nations by their respective military strength, United States and Soviet Union were equal. Uh, if you measure our relative strength by in terms of economy, uh, this is not a contest. Uh, and so uh, all these things happen. So where leadership comes into this, I would, the way I think I would put it, Peter, uh, something that we've always had uh, because we have a system uh, in America, and I think that this is uh, the one principle of the leadership system that we have in this country is that it is a meritocracy. Uh, the last thing we want is a House of Lords, it seems to me. Uh, offices inherited, uh, things like this. And I say that as somebody who's, uh, you know, looked at this question as somebody who's been part of a family. Uh, <clears throat> we have a system which brings uh, resourceful people to power. Uh, it can go wrong, but I'm saying uh, we have a system that brings resourceful people to power. And so when you're facing the dilemma on the eve of World War One or two. Uh, we have a Roosevelt, uh, you have a Truman, you have Eisenhower at the right time, you have, uh, you, can, you can make arguments uh, for, for most presidents, it seems to me, that they're the right person at the right time. I think that's something that, on top of everything else, as long as our system remains that, that way, character, characterized that way, uh, with a process that we can have confidence in, and that is our, our process of electing leaders. Uh, we will bring leaders to the fore when we need them. In the Vietnam era, this is a retreat, and I'm not sure what leadership looks like under those circumstances, but it definitely required uh, people who uh, could discern uh, the possibilities for the United States uh, and, and the problems we were up against. It was an agonizing period, but we did come out of it uh, and enjoyed uh, one of our great eras. In fact, this was another uh, trip that we took overseas, 2002. Uh, maybe people in the audience would disagree with this, but uh, Julie and I go to China for the second time. The first time we went in the Mao era, 
Uh, we go back in 2002 and uh, we're at a banquet uh, with all the members of Mao's old entourage who were around for the 1972 trip. And it's the second night and I'm able to ask all kinds of questions. Everybody's a friend, questions I've always wanted to ask like, how many people can you have in China uh, before you run out of room? The answer was 2.2 billion, by the way. They have 1.3 right now. They figured that out, huh? Yeah, they figured that out. <clears throat> that was 2002. But uh, all of a sudden, somebody stood up and raised their glass and said, did the Shanghai communicate the beginning of the greatest 30 years in China's 4,000-year history? And the following night, we were able to sort of recover uh, to the Shanghai communique, uh, the beginning of some of the best, maybe the best 30 years of American history, and I'm talking about the Reagan era and the Clinton era, uh, and other, other times when I think all of us uh, in this room experienced uh, a time when not only we knew we were at some level fortunate, but that uh, being fortunate was really uh, front and center of something that uh, America in every way or political culture was reinforcing. And those were good times to be alive, good time to make a living. Uh, and I think we're all enjoying that now. Just as an aside, we talked about presidential libraries. I went to Hanoi, and I went to the, I went to the Ho Chi Minh Mausoleum. Right. <laughs> the day that his ear didn't fall off. Uh, but in there was an amazing uh, collection of papers and letters that he wrote to, to FDR. Yeah. Right. It's, it, it's eye-opening about how much he loved America, how much he wanted to come to America, yeah. how much he supported America. So at the end of the day, maybe we're still in the American century. Uh, we might be. Uh, uh, I think most of the social revolutionaries, or not most, what I know, I'm not an historian about social revolution, but uh, for instance, Stalin's favorite country was America. Uh, <clears throat> uh, Ho Chi Minh. I think that the, uh, a lot of them saw their revolutions uh, as ways to uh, leapfrog stages in development to try to reach retain what America had, had reached. The, the darkest hours of Soviet history are, are their efforts to leapfrog stages of industrialization uh, to turn a rural uh, czarist empire into an industrial super state. And this, is, uh, this is one of the real tragic tales uh, in Soviet history, but I think they're being driven by this colossus that has risen uh, in North America. The American progress between our, our Civil War in 1910 is really something. By the way, on the subject of presidents and I would say discernment or leadership qualities, uh, I would, uh, in fact, uh, I would recommend, uh, there have been some, uh, several very good books again on Ulysses Grant. Uh, and as somebody who's a student of presidential speeches, two of the most interesting speeches are considered poor inaugurals, but they are fascinating. Uh, was this the one who was angry? No, this is, yeah, yeah, Ulysses Grant in 1869, Ulysses Grant in 1873. And uh, I think that these, these speeches make these two points in succession. In other words, 1869 is mainly addressed uh, to young people coming out of the Civil War. Uh, and he's urging Americans in the wake of the Civil War to wake up uh, to the clear and present opportunity that they have to really move their country to the forefront of uh, nations in the world. Uh, but one of the things he addresses is something that is uh, being talked about all the time now, and that is the quality of American democracy. And as we know, political theorists uh, 
at the time, even people that uh, we had read when we were uh, forming our basic institutions felt that uh, for a genuine democracy to work, you needed a city-state, you needed Geneva, and you needed something small. Uh, the democracy, uh, when it expands, becomes Roman, it becomes an empire, uh, the Senate becomes marginalized, and we need emperors, and so forth. And so his first observation, this is 1869, says, uh, I wholly disagree with the school uh, that America cannot remain a republic in a self-governing republic in a de uh, democracy uh, the larger we get. He says, uh, communications, and this is where you come in, Peter, he says, has changed all of that. He says, our ability to uh, communicate by telegraph and to transmit information uh, and so forth uh, has actually made America much smaller. Uh, and then in his second inaugural, this is 1863, this is the uh, leading American uh, Union General of the American Civil War. 73. Ulysses Grant in his second inaugural says, and I do believe that God in his good time is moving the world uh, towards a uh, community in which there will be no flags, no armies, uh, and we'll all be united as one people. Not Facebook. Yeah, Facebook. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> but I think that's been a vision. Uh, that's yeah. even a vision that's present in the minds of uh, the World War II leaders. Uh, they're, they're all reaching for something, uh, you know, in the mind of a Stalin, it's a crude guarantee against invasion, but I think in the minds of a Churchill uh, or a Roosevelt, it's a vision uh, of a world where uh, this kind of uh, conflict is not necessary or even thinkable. And so that's the kind of, they, they were in fact 1944, tragically not in 1917, uh, but in 1944 they were fighting a war to end all wars. Uh, and it has ended major wars, we hope. So we'll see. The Ion Travel Podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be because Survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. 
Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. 